Welcome to In Conversation with Our Food Future, a podcast that's following the creation of a circular food economy in Guelph, Wellington, Canada. I'm Barb Schwarzenschuber, former executive director of the Our Food Future initiative and host of this series. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Tamara Soma. Originally hailing from Indonesia, she conducts research on issues pertaining to food loss and waste, food system planning, food access, and the circular food economy. Dr. Soma is an assistant professor of the School of Resource and Environmental Management at Simon Fraser University and research director of the Food Systems Lab. Chatelaine Magazine called her one of 10 inspiring Canadian women saving the environment, and she was also named one of the Style Canada Changemakers. After, we'll have a listen to Snack Bites. Snack Bites grounds circular economy ideas in our Guelph and Wellington backyards. Tamara, I'm so happy to be here with you today. You know, in the landscape of uh, work that's happening on on food system, circular food system planning in Canada is um, so interesting and things are happening so fast. And I'm I'm hoping today we can talk about not just what's happening, but how it's happening and, and what people are bringing to the work and what feels different to you about even what's going on now versus five years ago. The things that we would talk about now in terms of circular food system planning that are different. Um, so maybe the, the first thing I would like to talk about is, you know, what do you see that's different? Like what what is emerging in circular food system planning that you didn't see five years ago, let's say? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, Barb. And thanks again for having me. I'm very honored to be in this podcast. You know, one of the things that's very exciting for me when it comes to planning for a circular food economy is the resurgence on Indigenous planning. So the reason why this is so important, especially for the planning field and for circular food economy is because, you know, I remember my own experience. I was a master's of science in planning student at the University of Toronto. And I uh, basically took an elective on indigenous planning, and I clearly remembered that there were only three students. And <laughs> three planning students with one of the best indigenous professor, uh, Dr. Deborah McGregor. So obviously we had this really lovely class where we had one-on-one -on -one pretty much attention, but it was really shocking at that point back in 2008, how very little indigenous considerations were integrated into planning and, and policy. Um, and, and this is very shocking considering that planning is all about land use, human settlements, mm -hmm. about thinking about the balance between built environment and natural environment. And in the context of Canada, and especially for me right now, um, being on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nation, it is mind-boggling to think that that you know planning does not integrate um, uh, indigenous um, views and perspectives. And so, what is really exciting right now, um, from back from 2008, is the increasing emphasis on the importance of indigenous voices, centering indigenous voices and introducing a whole new generation of planners to better uh, to like better engagement, better approaches, and better knowledge about how it is to, uh, to collaborate and partner with Indigenous peoples in planning um, and decision-making. And that was basically non-existent when, when I was a graduate student. So that is really exciting. And now I want to tie it back to the circular food economy piece. The reason why it's so exciting is because, you know, I basically um, got exposed to Indigenous teachings um, and philosophy from a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Aaron Mills, who is from Kuchi First Nations. And the thing that connected the whole circular food economy was when he said, greetings to all my relations. And when I just thought, oh, my relations, that is such a beautiful teaching. And it's so aligned with my own worldview that we are all interconnected. And when we when we went to when we went you know on the side to to talk about a little bit more about the teaching itself he said that you know Tamara all my relations is not just between humans and humans but it's also with the plants and with the you know animals and so I thought to myself okay so blueberries strawberries like all of these food they are our relations
relations. And so how can we ever think about just disposing or commoditizing our relations? And that's what I'm excited about. It's just a whole new resurgence on indigenous planning. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. And, and I love that phrase, all my relations. Can we, can we sort of um, dig into that a little bit? Because I think, I think what you're raising is that once we started to recognize the importance of bringing Indigenous, not just traditional, but current and future knowledge to the work that we're doing, it opens up a whole other way of understanding and being present in the work. And I think all my relations as a, as a concept is so rich and full and it brings out issues or opportunities to talk about how we, how we show up to the work and the way in which we, you know, bring our soul or a sense of the sacred um, to the work that we do and to our relationship with, with the land, the plants, the animals, and so on. Can you say a little bit about that and other ways in which this opens up different ways of working and, and being in the work? Yeah, I think, you know, you, you made a good point in terms of the notion of sacredness. And I think for me, um, I, I believe that my, uh, I have a sacred responsibility to others, to all my relations. And that means, you know, whether you come from different countries, different gender, different religion, it doesn't matter because I do have a sacred responsibility to treat everyone well, to treat, um, you know, um, everyone kindly. But that also relates to kind of like my responsibility and accountability to plant relations and animal relations. And I think, um, you know, when we started the Food Systems Lab, uh, my colleague Belinda and I, who is the co-founder of the Food Systems Lab, when we started in 2016, we said, we're going to do things differently. Um, and we started the lab basically with indigenous uh, ceremonies. And so we had um, a lovely elder, Elder Patrick Najiwan, who basically led every session with a prayer, which is, again, back in 2016, that was not common. That was not the common practice. Um, and another thing also, we had a little blueberry ceremony um, that was ran by Melanie um, Goodchild, who is a wonderful Indigenous scholar from Big Tigong, um, Nishnabek First Nation. And so like that was a, a time, a moment where I myself as, a, as an immigrant to Canada, so I'm originally from Indonesia, and others who are never exposed to that kind of ceremony, to that kind of relationship, and to, you know, like we actually had um, a bowl of blueberries and we each took the blueberries. So we shared from the same bowl, you know, that is very much aligned to the, 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 the spoon, the dish with one spoon, one spoon, one yeah. belt uh, when we were in Toronto, because the whole thing is like, you know, it's about sharing, uh, but it's also about knowing when we've had enough, you know, so we took one blueberry and one person didn't just hog it all to themselves. And sometimes some of the, like, I, I feel like in general society, as a society, we've lost a lot of those bare bones, basic teachings, like the golden rules, the golden rules about ethics, not wasting, knowing what is meant by enough, understanding that the world is not just material objects to be commodified and wasted, but that there is an inherent spirit and soul within us and including with the animals and the plants. So hopefully, again, with that indigenous resurgence I mentioned, um, more, more and more Canadians, more and more scholars in this field can understand the value of thinking in a different way. That's that's so true and and so wonderful. You mentioned the Food Systems Lab. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and some of the projects you're working on now? Yes, absolutely. So I'm very proud and very privileged to be part of the Food Systems Lab. So the Food Systems Lab is a social innovation lab. It's interdisciplinary. So we work with colleagues from various disciplines, whether it be engineering and the natural sciences to the humanities, you know, you name it. We, you know, we are very much inclusive when it comes to disciplinary fields. Um, we have been working on various projects from 
farm to table and beyond, including um, outer space. Um, that's been increasingly also a fascination of mine. Um, like, you know, it, uh, I think a lot of people are fascinated, but especially for me, um, I see myself as an earthling and I see myself also potentially one day being an interstellar food system planner. You never know. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, you know, that that's the thing about food system planning that's exciting is that, you know, you really can tackle so so many different research questions and work with so many diverse um, stakeholders and right holders and using different methodologies. And that's what I love about it is that we can be very creative, whether it be, you know, using hard quantitative methods to very participatory art-based research. We kind of do it all at the Food Systems Lab. I, I'm I'm still thinking about interstellar food system planners. That's something to aspire to, the job of the future. Yes, absolutely. Um, you never know. <laughs> let's let's go back and tie a few things together. So we were talking about uh, what comes from uh, understanding a di uh, indigenous point of view in this work and experience. And, and we talked a little bit about the research and the work that you're doing and the social innovation. What does all of that mean now for a circular food system? Because we, we, you, you mentioned not wasting food as an important principle or value, but what does all of this mean now? And what, what do you think we need to build into our thinking about a circular food system? That, that comes from that rich understanding of relationship with the earth and, and other beings. So um, the reason why I, I think that, you know, we, we call ourselves the food systems lab and systems thinking is very important. And I find that, you know, at the root of almost every problem, it's not, it's not technology, it's not anything else, but it's actually really worldview. It's really, really our worldviews. And so when we do work at the Food Systems Lab, we are trying to dig into the root, cause of, root causes of various problems, including waste, including injustice, racism, you know, you name it, um, by looking at and tackling and unpacking worldviews. And why is it that this particular worldview, when mobilized, you know, result in this type of situation? And so, therefore, you know, I, I work with digital agricultural technologies. You know, I'm, I'm really interested in some of the more high-tech approaches to food systems and food solutions. However, without really tackling the worldview piece, we're just going to keep on repeating the same problem only with newer and maybe more impactful technologies. And that can be either good or bad. And so I think that, you know, at the end of the day, when we engage with participants, when we bring in participants with different lived experiences and different worldviews, and also, you know, with myself, because I come from Indonesia, from the global south, um, I have also lived experiences that might be different and that might be new um, for um, scholars here or students here or even participants here in Canada. We, we come to a point where we kind of share each other's cultural geniuses. And I think that's mm -hmm. the that's the whole goal of it is, you know, as we are in the process of learning from one another, we can really harness all of the positive benefits of our different worldviews and harness it together to kind of create a new pathway and a new vision for a circular food economy that doesn't just recycle and rehash, you know, the same old, same old status quo of commodifying something, you know, to sell it um, and then just repeating the whole wasteful process in the name, in the guise of circular food economy. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. And and having just come from uh, working on a smart city project and and sorting out how to bring digital technologies to bear on some of these issues, you're right. They come, they tend to have been developed from a different worldview than their target market or audience. And um, do you have any thoughts on how you go about that process of helping people to come together um, and do, do you think we're creating a new shared worldview is that is that what this is about well i think the hope is definitely that we are going to create a new shared shared worldview that um, in a way integrate 
more voices of those who are marginalized or oppressed. Um, I always think when it comes to new technologies and new advancement and new in innovation, who really benefits? You know, who gets burden and who is benefit? Just like when we think about food and waste, you know, we think about, well, who gets to define what is food and who gets to define what is waste? Um, so there's a lot of power when it comes to um, technological development, when it comes to innovation and intervention. And so at the lab, we're always kind of focused and emphasizing on, you know, who has a who does not have a seat on the table? Who should be part of that table, that food table, you know, that we are setting all of the meal together? Um, and And so I think, you know, in that shared world, we need to kind of, open up the table a lot more because I find that, especially when it comes to the, the food world, it has taken a very long time to actually get more diverse voices in. Mm -hmm. And um, this is where I'm, I'm very passionate uh, in just really supporting, um, you know, student understanding, also like a new participation, engagement and breaking the barriers to, to involvement in this type of research and vision kind of making. I've heard you talk really eloquently about food as a right and food equity. What do you what do you think we I want to ask you in a minute about where communities should start on this journey, but what do you think we need to do around food policy and um, uh, food system policy in particular in order to move in that direction towards a food as a right and food equity issues? Yeah, so I just want to I just want to credit uh, my student, actually my graduate student Jamie Lynn Varney, um, developed a report for the Vancouver Economic Commission uh, called "A Right to Food Approach to a Circular Food Economy." And so, um, you know, for anyone listening, I really hope that they can Google it and then download the report itself because I think you know she did a very good job um, with starting kind of the conversation. I think what's really important at the end of the day is that our government has such a strong role in helping Canadians be completely food secure and food sovereign and also to help us, um, not just the federal government, but also at every level, provincial and especially municipal government, to create place-based systems like place-based circular food economy that would enable us to um, have closed-loop uh, systems and circularity. I think the problem is that, you know, for the longest time, and this is actually evident in the planning field, for the longest time, we've just kind of left off the whole food issue to the market. Let the market sell, you know, solve this problem. Um, however, when we think about it at the end of the day, food is a human right. And so for me as a Muslim, actually, like food as a human right is emphasized over and over again in the Quran. Basically, we are in existence and the creator has given everything that we need to survive. And so when it comes to the fact that, you know, um, a significant number of Canadians, I think it's over 4 million Canadians are food insecure. That's again, not because of the lack of food, it's because of that unjust power relations. And so the government as, uh, as leaders, whether it be at the federal, provincial and municipal, have a very strong role in terms of accountability and creating the policies and the regulations that would enable all of us to thrive and access food. And, and it shouldn't just be because some of us make more money than others. Yes, yeah. And, and if you're a, a community um, and, and you want to start to do work towards a circular food system, do you have some advice for communities about where to start? Yeah, I think I have a few advice just because, you know, in my role as a planner, I often work, you know, with community, whether it be at the neighborhood level or maybe in the urban you know, um, realm. Um, so one of the first things that we want to think about is maybe uh, doing a community food assessment or a community mm. food asset mapping. So trying to understand, you know, what do we have in terms of like the, the assets, you know, the, the strength base and then wh where might uh, there be gaps? in our communities. And so, for example, you know, we can have a beautiful community garden. And so there's that component where we can grow our own food and we can share the food and eat it. But then we realize that, oh no, we actually do not have the regulations and the bylaws and the processes to uh, enable like composting for example, um, then that, that could be, you know, assessed through that community food assessment or community food asset mapping process. And so I think that that, that can be one, uh, you know, step. 
It's like to understand the baseline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. then, you know, the one thing that I think um, the Food Secure Canada group did a very good job a long, long time ago was they did a people's food policy. And uh, mm-hmm. the people's food policy document was basically all done through a table, like basically going around the country and just over a dinner, you know, at, at a table mm-hmm. and just talking about, you know, what is our vision? What do we want? Um, and I think it could start over at a dinner table. Yes. I've always wanted to, um, I've always wanted in the project we've been working on in Guelph, I always envisioned a long table down the main street where everyone was invited to come and be part of a conversation about what, what their vision and hope is for a food system for the future. I think, you know, we, we found in that project that the power of a shared vision was incredibly important and that so many things can happen once you support and inspire people. It's kind of back to that shared, maybe we don't get to a shared worldview exactly, but a shared vision of what the future could look like for food and the power of imagining a different future. Do you want to say a little bit about that? And I'm, I guess I'm also wondering, I imagine the students you work with and see the next generation are, are both inspired and daunted by the challenges that the food system faces from a climate change perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. So there's, there's a lot there. And I, I just want to go back to that table vision that you had, you know, the long table vision. And so going back to why we started the food systems lab, the reason why we were struggling and, um, and, and, and why, why we wanted to conceive of the food systems lab is because we, we felt that when it comes to circular food economy or food waste and food insecurity solutions, often the people that are reliant on say the charities, like the food bank recipients, the people that actually have to go to soup kitchens, they were not at the table. The single mothers, they were not at the table. The seniors and the elders that are barely making ends meet, you know, with their pension, they're not at the table. And so when we, when I think about, you know, that kind of shared vision, um, I come back to like a spiritual teaching that I was told uh, that basically, you know, the, the worst kind of feast, um, and this is specifically talking about a, a, like wedding banquets, but like any kind of feast, the worst kind of feast is the feast where the poor are not invited. And I think increasingly we are seeing that, you know, the growing disparity in Canada. And Mm -hmm. my worry always is that, you know, if we're envisioning a circular food economy, where do those people, you know, where do Mm -hmm. they have a voice and ensuring that they have a voice. And so when it comes to doing work with my students, you know, I feel very privileged to have the opportunity to be a professor, to work with my students. I I help them understand how to do work um, in a good manner, with good relations, uh, with ethics and accountability, so that, you know, all of the work that we do are representative and are not done in a way to just kind of like further entrench oppression. Because I think that academia can actually further entrench oppression. And we know that's the case, especially with Indigenous peoples. And so I'm passionate about building a team um, that basically challenges and counter all of that and start kind of mending and healing relationship so that food is no longer weaponized, but food becomes medicine, you know, like what the indigenous yes. elders would teach. Yes. And I think all of, um, all of our organizations and societal structures are struggling right now with how to, to change the sort of built in structural inequities um, in how we think about things and do things. And so, yeah, academia and, and lots of, and lots of other organizations uh, that are important in our society. So can I, uh, sorry, I asked you a really complex question. Can we come back to talk about your students and what they, what you see from them around uh you, you know, the impact of climate change on our food system and the power actually of food systems to mitigate and help address some of the climate issues. I'm, I'm wondering if they come to you with both despair and also, um, you know, high hopes for what they can accomplish in the future and, and, and how they see food systems within that context. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's this um, there's this terminology called climate anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. there's even climate angst. And now I'm also um, finding research and scholarship on trying to help heal climate trauma, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing that a lot of students are being um, being bombarded by messaging that is very very frightening when it comes to climate change and you know planetary destruction. Um, but but that there's often this feeling of helplessness and hopelessness that this is such a giant complex wicked problem that they don't have any um, you know possible solution to 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 tackling this. And what I always say, and actually I do have students that come to me and share their their you know their just feeling of sadness at what is happening, especially with leadership, because what students are finding with a lot of um, political leadership is that they would promise one thing and then they would do another thing. And so that actually goes back to, again, to ethics. You know, if you care about climate change, why are you doing certain things? You know, that is actually completely counter against, you know, what what we need to do. And what, uh, you know, I think with the food systems work that we do, um, a lot of the students um, have the opportunity to work on the ground with community members that despite all of the obstacles, despite all of the challenges and um, and everything, that they are doing really good things, that they are mm-hmm. impacting people um, on an everyday basis. And so that can be a hundred people within a neighborhood or within a city, um, and it might not be globally at this moment, but I always tell students that every good deed that you do, um, it will not be wasted. Right. Every good deed that you do will always be taken into account, will bring good karma to mm-hmm. others and to you. Um, and so don't ever feel hopeless, because even if you're not going to change the whole global system now, you know, you're only one human. We all have limited lifespan in this world. Um, do the best that you can with your abilities. And, and, and it, I promise them that it will it will never, never, ever go to waste. Um, and at least from our spiritual teaching, that is that is definitely true. And, and do you think, do you see the power of food systems to actually affect change both, you know, from an environmental, economic and community, thriving communities point of view? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the Eat Lancet report uh, mentioned that food is one of the strongest lever uh, for, uh, you know, for the environment, for health and well-being, for the economy, so basically for planetary change. Um, And I think that food systems, well, first of all, food brings people together. Food brings communities together. Um, Good relationships with food can actually um, create the opportunity to celebrate one's identity, cultural identity, um, and therefore create more of a sense of belonging. Um, And actually, I'm excited because I'm currently working on a documentary that's been funded and commissioned by CBC um, on the healing power of food. Um, And the title of the documentary is called um, Food is My Teacher. And so that's mm-hmm. going to be launched uh, this summer, hopefully in tw- 2023, this summer. And hopefully like through through that documentary alone, I hope that people will watch that and see how hopeful um, things are when we, we when we look at food systems and we think about biodiversity, when we think about um, how to uh, how to bring people together and to create um, food that is good for health and well-being. So there's just there's just a lot of hopeful things. I never I never let the doom and gloom um, put me down. <laughs> I'm so I'm glad you brought that up. I'm so looking forward to seeing that documentary. Congratulations on on being part of that. I always like to end these conversations by asking people to reflect on, you know, an experience of growing food or eating food, a family kind of meal or a special meal and and what uh, how that reflects on the kinds of ways that brings you in touch with the food that you eat and also inspires you in the work that you do. So I, I, you talked about the blueberries, which I think was a wonderful example, but are there other, other experiences that you've had uh, with growing food or, or making a meal that really depicts the, the importance of this for you and your work? 
Yes, you know, so I mean, I can sit here for <laughs> maybe 10 hours to talk about all of the beautiful experiences that I've had when it comes to like food. Um, but I, I will just share one thing. So I, um, as part of the CBC documentary, I attended a langar which is uh, in a Sikh, uh, Sikh uh, Gurdwara, so Sikh temple. And the langar is like a community kitchen where everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, income, can come together and just eat, eat together, eat really delicious, good food. And, you know, the fact that, you know, I'm a Muslim and I'm there in a Sikh temple and I was welcomed with open arms and we were just eating together. I mean, that is the power of food, I think. And I think, you know, being a Muslim, um, there can be a lot of stigma, you know, people would look at me and they might just see um, someone that they don't know or a stranger or they might be scared uh, but through food you know we can really break a lot of these division and we can really unite people together and I, I had that beautiful experience at the Sikh Langar. Oh thank you it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today and thank you so much for sharing the work that you do and your experiences and I'm looking forward to seeing what, what, uh, what you're involved in next. Thank you so much. Today's Snack Bite is a conversation between two local change makers, Marva Wisdom and Brendan Johnson. They sit down to talk about food system transformation. This is so great to be here with you, Brandon, and thank Sonia and her team uh, for sort of you know, giving a little, a little, what can I say, just, just touching our back or whatever you can say and asking us to, uh, to have a conversation about this. I think we are really honored. We know that there are incredible people in our community that doing good work as related to food security. And uh, I sort of come about this in a, a different kind of way having to do with the Arts Everywhere uh, Festival and especially uh, the 2023 Arts Everywhere Festival in January, uh, where our keynote speaker for the Guelph Lecture the Friday night was uh, Dr. Will Bally. Um, and Brandon, I'm so glad that you were able to be in the room when that conversation was taking place, not only you, but other members of your team, because of the important work that Guelph Neighborhood Support Coalition is doing. And uh, Sonia and I, as we talked about the festival upcoming and talk about the lecture, it was very clear and important to connect what uh, Dr. Will Valley is doing uh, with the work that's do being done locally in the community and one having to do with the food resiliency table. So I mentioned Dr. Will Valley a couple of times, so I better say who he is because I think that's important. Um, he, he is the Associate Dean of Equity, Inclusion and Colonization in the Faculty of Land and Food Science Systems at the University of British Columbia. That's quite a mouthful. And uh, I have not seen before where um, colonization, faculty of land is linked into equity yeah. and inclusion. Yeah. So even the, the portfolio that he has is something that's really significant. Uh, he was connected to us um, by Sean Ventrus, and, and Sean is the executive director for Music Eddie's, connected, of course, to the Arts Everywhere Festival. Uh, his research focuses on food sustainability, and I think what struck me in the conversation with him at the Guelph Lecture um, on being was that he was so open and he was so forthright. Uh, folks talked about a conversation as if they were sitting around the, the kitchen table. Uh, the, the Guelph Lecture on being, it, we were celebrating our 20th anniversary, and it is a space and a place where uh, folks come to hear some of the conversations from leading, I'm not going to say experts, I'm going to say lead thinkers, you might say leading thinkers, uh, to talk about issues of um, critical uh, importance to us. And I heard from many people that this was one of the best lectures and the best topic. Uh, as far as um, feeling that this, this was something that they could relate to, and this is something that seemed very accessible to them, and a conversation that took place where you could say, hey, this is happening in my community, and hey, I'm going to... I'm going to do something about it, and here's, a, here's what I could incorporate. Uh, this festival takes place every year. Uh, we are moving now from January 
uh, to May. So if the next one is going to be 2024, uh, the first weekend in May. I'm going to ask you to mark your calendars for that. And we're certainly going to have uh, some, uh, uh, another thought-provoking guest speaker uh, for the Guelph Lecture and certainly the programming that goes on for a weekend that ensures that we're truly inclusive and that it's a safer and a braver space for discussion, conversation for those who are uh, different and those who want to feel the sense of belonging and inclusion. And we certainly focus on indigeneity, on the environment, as we said earlier, and equity and um, the LGBTQ plus uh, community. So I think I've said enough about Arts Everywhere Festival and wow. the topic yeah. that we're going to talk about. So I'm going to leave with Brandon to sort of talk about his take on the night. Wow. I feel, I feel like we're done. I think that was good. I feel like I'm just going to go ditto. And then we're, I think we can wrap this up. Uh, no, thanks, Marva. Thanks for the deep context. And I think, I don't know, there's so many places to start. Let me start with when you mentioned his title and who he is, that, um, yeah, like we don't, those intersections aren't often discussed in general, let alone in a title or in a faculty, you know, these, these dialogues we sometimes have in half-hearted ways are very fractured and separate and intentionally so for generations, right? And in, in centuries probably to keep these from us linking, making, connecting the dots, right? That these are all mm -hmm. different pieces. And I think the other beauty of that night I can dig into both was that this this was a sciencey kind of talk, but he definitely grounded it in um, language of white supremacy and colonialism and set the stage and ask us to take stops to pause and interpret and and kind of feel it in our body so that made it different but also um setting it up within an arts context you know that maybe at first it you know if you saw the poster it wouldn't feel like an arts presentation that it wouldn't be you know there's dr will valley from you know the university of whatever but that it was set up with a poet and a songwriter it just, I think it really helped, now I'll use a awful soil metaphor, but it really, it made the soil, the ground more fertile for a conversation that Will was going to have, you know, it, it opened up our hearts and minds and imaginations. And I think we really, what I keep seeing over and over is the arts are the only way we're going to try and dream together and imagine a future mm -hmm. together that isn't already been written or maybe reimagine a past that happened before all this destruction happened. But I was really mm -hmm. grateful that we walked into Will's lecture um, through the arts and that we were, we mm -hmm. could, we could walk into it. Cause I think sometimes, you know, I saw people in that audience, let me say that I, I think have been resistance to these conversations before, or just can't accept that, that framework or that way of speaking about things like, how can food be racist? How can, you know, how can, what are you talking about? You know, it doesn't seem those dots don't connect for folks because they've never been connected. But um, I really like too how he graduated from like a very, very local example to a provincial example to a global example. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, you could find yourself anywhere within that. So I found that, yep. yeah, I found it was it felt like it went by quickly, although he had a fair yeah. bit of time and he spoke about a lot. It, yeah, I, I left feeling very positive and I could see a lot of conversations yeah. already clustering around the room in the lobby and things already kind of, yeah, kind of fermenting. Well said, Brandon. Really, really well said. And uh, for you not be being involved in the festival or the planning or the programming, to take that away, uh, I think that means a lot to us who are organizing the festival and, and helps, I think, to support and, and strengthen how we move forward and how we, one of the things that we want to do is to really connect the community with the festival itself. It can't be just there for those who are in the know. It has to mean yeah. something to the people. It has to be relevant. And interestingly enough, the community plan, which I was working on today, we had a, a broader community meeting and it was a presentation from Dr. David Douglas. And he was talking about climate change and climate um, 
the climate crisis and how we can connect to it. And food was so present in that, in uh, food resiliency. And then when I look at the title that you refer to, it's land and food system. Holy smokes, right? The, the interconnection that you talk about, Brandon, is so important because so often we are siloed. We don't know what's happening with the other person. We make an assumption that what's going on over here has no relationship to what's happening here. When we're all interconnected as human beings, uh, Will's one of Will's stories about uh, the East Asian uh, woman, I think he had said she was of Chinese descent. And the reason why I'm mentioning uh, the ethnicity is because so often the cultural uh, relationship with how we find ourselves in society and how we relate to each other is, is missing, that cultural context. And because we, we try to get everybody to sort of meld together, right? We're one, as close to the colonial system as possible. And we recognize that we need to embrace difference. And when he talked about her coming into a food line, I think it was somewhere in Vancouver, and doing it repeatedly. And then as he comes into the food, as she comes into the food line repeatedly, an older woman, and folks started getting very upset with her, and even the folks who are distributing the food are thinking that she's being greedy and coming in several times over. And then learning later the complexity of her taking food to others who did not feel comfortable in the food line, whether they are younger or older, or even people who may be uh, bedridden or people who are differently abled and they're not able to, to stay in a food line. That, those stories are so critical and so important. So making space for the stories as to the why, rather than seeing one person out there, an isolated incident, we can't take for granted and impose our story and our assumptions on individuals who are looking for support. And we need to treat them with honor and with respect in all cases. And if we're yeah. asking what's going on with you, uh, we need to ask it in a way that will ensure that we are supporting them to the extent that they need support. So th that really struck me. That story has stayed with mm -hmm. me and I've repeated it a million times and now a million and one times since, since that <laughs> night. Yeah. Yeah. And Marvin, you know, that those are the stories because what, what it keeps highlighting is our, our systems are broken or, or like people say they were, they're built this way. So they're not broken, but they're creating more um, inequity every single day. And that, you know, the, so all of our systems are kind of white led or white designed, right? So when someone's coming for food and they're not a white person, oh, you know, even if you're in poverty, there's there's so many different intersections that, you know, there's and there's norms to white behavior or Western behavior, and if you deviate from that norm, you're judged, right? It, yes. Often not in a good way, but you're judged and you're you're othered and you're not, yes. um, yeah, you're not brought into the conversation. You're not part of the programming or solutioning to it. So you're just showing up. And then, you know, on top of that, you have all these people who are harmed and hurting and, and struggling and, mm. and they're, they're out of context with each other. Like there isn't any mm. connection there other than lining up for food and it's just yes. not set up for humanity. And, you know, to tell those stories for food providers or others, I'm sure we've all seen it in, in our own city where people are treated differently from different contexts, whether it's gender, yes. whether it's, you know, identity, whether it's, you know, race, whatever. I've seen it. I've seen it over and over. I've heard people who've gone to services experience things at different levels in different ways. And yeah, it, and it's because, you know, from my perspective is because the systemic is rarely brought into the conversation. It's all seen as individual behaviors. Well, yes. you know, that person wasn't nice to me and I'm trying to do my job. Mm -hmm. It's like, you, you, you know, we haven't, we don't have the time because of such urgency sometimes to zoom out or to have those larger conversations that Will was encouraging us to have to say, yes. well, did you know there, you know, if we even look at local stats or there's, um, 
Fano, is it Proof? I think the organization, they do a lot of work around yes. uh, food sovereignty and other issues and they 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 um, get data on race and other things and, and show kind of the huge disparities, you know, whether you're a white person suffering poverty versus a black person versus, you know, and and the numbers are very clear, but we don't see them enough and we don't see them in context yeah. enough. So everyone just thinks food is strictly a poverty thing. And I mean, we haven't yeah. even gone into the fact that land has been stolen. People yeah. who normally would have had subsistence from the land and, and made yes. their own food and grown their own food and never had to access Western food systems do, let alone, mm -hmm. you know, like there's so many layers to this piece that, you know, those kind of chats that Will gave um, really encourage us to think differently about it. Mm -hmm. And I think like a lot of things, bringing someone from outside the community to hold that conversation brings a different context to it for us. Like if, mm -hmm. if you or me, Marva, have it, it, you know, me, I'll just say me, I might alienate some folks in the I conversation and others. Right. Like it just having someone else, you know, it's often someone else mm -hmm. has to come in and tell you something and you can't hear it from the people who are closest. And yeah. yeah. So I really appreciated him bringing that conversation here. And again, it was really, he was very clear in his language and he was very clear about it. And I think words like white supremacy still mm -hmm. generate a lot of white fear. Right. The immediate yes. hearing of that kind of makes white people go a bit deaf and a bit yes. angry and defensive. And, you know, he I felt like he was trying to demystify that a little bit like this is just yeah. look what it looks like, like that valley example he gave. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of like an FU by the land. Right. Like sooner or later, this thing's going to flood again, no matter how, yeah. how, how, you know, they, how big you think you are in the world as people or yeah. white settlers guess what the earth's going to have its way you know we're not you're not going to it's just going to keep happening why are you trying to make this lake into yes. non-lake right it, it wants yes. to be a yes. lake it's always been a lake right like don't yes. the the foolishness of our our um yeah of our thoughts that we can mm -hmm. you know we can bend nature to our will without consequences astonishing to me Mm -hmm. and and also use nature i think about i know this morning as i was thinking about this podcast i was thinking about as i'm you know driving around and i'm, I'm looking at the space that we have and where there are spaces that could be used by the public and i know that we have different food gardens in different places but how can we make those kinds of things much more intentional right so it's used mm -hmm. for those who want that. In a country like this, there really should not be um, food shortage where people are going yeah. hungry. There is absolutely no excuse for it. So, you know, when when you know someone listening to this might be thinking about what can I do? You know, I'm just one person, and not that we have the answers. I know that I certainly don't have the answers, but. We can think about as individuals, what are some small steps that we can take um, to make that difference? And it's similar with the climate crisis discussion and, and, and conversation. Um, I know that Will would be happy to come back again. And one of the things I know that Sonia and I had talked about, um, and I think, and yourself, uh, Brendan, we were just trying to bring some people together to maybe look at a repository of those who are doing work around food, even those who are not necessarily, there's so many in wealth, but there's so many others that we don't know, or even little neighborhoods yeah. that are doing their own little thing and pulling mm -hmm. all of that together and figure out a way collectively. And I'm going to say collectively and collaboratively, how we can ensure that no one goes hungry. Yes, there are places like Hope House and there's a seed and Harvest Market. There are all of these things that are happening but we know that there are still folks who will not come forward to those spaces and those places to get what they mm -hmm. need. They would rather go hungry because of shame and everything that is attached to that. How yeah. do we build a space that to ensure that everyone feels welcome? I was um, going. I was down at University Avenue in, in Toronto. I had my granddaughter with me. I was going to an event and I was meeting my um, my daughter. And there was this long, long lineup. I didn't know what the long lineup was all about, 
but I noticed people were eating and I realized that it was um, a, a food a food space, I guess. Um, there were, I, I'm not sure whether the Daily Bread Food Bank or what it was, but people were being fed. And as we were walking, there are a number of people that were walking by and nobody approached the, the, the folks that were walking by that was white. But they immediately, as soon as I arrived on the scene, I was approached by someone to say, the lineup starts here um, for food. Uh-huh. And I started yeah. thinking, you know, that's another thing we look at it. Like, what does hungry look like? And, and many times mm-hmm. where there are gaps is because assumptions are made that is the other. And we don't care enough mm-hmm. about the other to ensure that everybody gets fed. And so those are difficult conversations to have because collectively, as you said, we're all going to sink or swim. We're all going to be, you know, the boat's going to rise for all of us. And uh, we need to start looking at society in that way that we are our brothers and sisters and others keeper. Um, We're not, we're not here alone and we need to start figuring that out rather quickly. Yeah, yeah, that that deep interconnectivity, not just human to human, but human to tree, human to cloud, human to soil, human to brick, even, you know, like, we're all, yeah, we're, nothing happens in isolation, good and bad, right? But especially, I mean, what it comes down to me is that it's, there's intentionality behind all of this, and the inequities and the things that are happening. Obviously, it's about some people getting very rich and others suffering the, the a far bigger number suffering right and and that there's no uh, deeper thought than that sometimes and it's that's a bit heartbreaking for sure to think that that is really how our western world operates that you know that this is what we do we we you know extract and we keep taking and taking without return and that's pretty you know it, not only is it hurting the world the land the people but just everything about you know our our souls it's just yeah it's it's a devastating conversation for sure but i you know like you've seen there's pockets of beauty and there's people who are trying to do the work in, in beautiful and meaningful ways. And I guess that's where the hope comes from. And I guess that again, to me, brings me back to where art and artists help us find ways to change the conversations or have them differently or feel them differently, feel them in our bodies and in our hearts, not just intellectualize them and have those kind of debates that we can, arts transforms us to have deeper, deeper conversations. I'm Barb Schwarzenegger. Thanks for joining me today. If you have ideas for a show or comments, you can send us an email at foodfuture@guelph.ca. Until next time, and let's keep the conversation going on foodfuture.ca.